Thank you. Who knew a year ago when I scheduled this that um, Jesus would be the topic that's in all the magazines, newspapers, and said, how many people have seen Mel Gibson's Passion of Christ? Come on. Man, what a politically correct crowd we are. I usually don't go to movies where the good guy dies in the end, so I wasn't going to see it, but I thought it was a professional responsibility. Um, I do find the anti-Semitism in it disturbing. In that, I was tracking this issue from about a year ago when the discussion was then about the script. And biblical scholars pointed out to him that, you know, the Gospels, which were written 50 and 100 years later, were a political document. And at that point, you know, Christianity was part of Judaism for 200 years. And at that point, they were kind of like struggling between the Christian sects and the fundamentalists. And the people who were converting in droves were the Romans. So you're not going to write it making the Romans the bad guys. This just wasn't politically right. And given the amount of prejudice, the amount of persecution, the amount of death that that story has brought on the world, you would think that he might make some updates. Now, of course, he says, he says, you know, the gospel tells me so. You know, I mean, it's in the gospel. Um, but I would maintain, since he's changed so many other things, that there's only one reason that he did it, and that was for Hollywood drama. I mean, this is not about the life of Jesus. This is about from his capture to his crucifixion, 12 hours. So, like, there's no story story there. You've got to have a bad guy and a good guy. So, and, and he does make changes. I mean, we see the movie shows the whole thing through the eyes of of his mother, Mary. So you're seeing them beaten and tortured through the eyes of his mother. There's no mention of his mother being anywhere near there in the Gospels. But the big thing is that you've probably heard, like 20 or 30 minutes, you watch somebody being whipped. And not only just whipped and beaten for 20 or 30 minutes, they have these things that pull off his skin and big hunks. You know, why do it? It's really gruesome. Well, let's go back to the Gospel. The gospel, according to Matthew and Mark, have one sentence. It's the same sentence. They took a reed and smote him on the head. And in John, you get, they smote him with their hands. And Luke mentions no beating whatsoever. What was Gibson trying to say with this movie? It's striking to me that he does two flashbacks. One of them is to um, the Sermon on the Mount. And of the whole Sermon on the Mount, he chooses one, one point, saying that to love people who love you, that's your self-interest. It's loving your enemies. You know your love is true and strong. That idea. And then he shows the scene where he says, you who have not sinned may throw the first stone. Then we watch this incredible beating, ending with a crucifixion. Jesus is beaten, he's bent, but spiritually he doesn't bow. He doesn't hate them for all they're doing from him. He doesn't hate them because he hasn't really committed any crime here. He says, bless, I bless them. He, he is not taking cruelty without compassion. He's being compassionate in the face of cruelty. 
I assume he's making a statement about 9-11 in Iraq. I guess that's what Gibson was trying to do. But that seems to be his message. You know, there are millions of interpretations of the greatest story ever told. I mean, we're talking 20 centuries here of preachers every single Sunday all over the world. Some of them educated, some of them not, some of them literalist, some of them figurativist. Some of them interpreting, misinterpreting a story that has so many dimensions to it. How many here, how many here have been Christians or are Christians? Ah, a goodly number. Good. Um, I want to try to offend all of you equally. <laughs> um, because there's a big difference between the Christianity that we get in church, and it changes depending on what church we're in. But there's a big difference between Christianity and the story of Jesus and the story of Christ. I mean, Christianity is something, you know, it's about sacraments and trinities, and, or maybe not trinities, depending. But it's something that was created centuries and over, over, over centuries and centuries after Jesus was long gone. So I'm not going to talk about Christianity. I'm going to talk about the story of Jesus and the story of Christ, which are really two stories. The story of Jesus, we're going to talk about the life, the message, the impact on people, then we'll do the Christ story, and then a little bit on applications. Now, I'm going to try to tell a story, you know, at its best. In other words, when you think about it, uh, it's the largest religion, or there are more people who claim to be adherents of it than any other religion. One out of three people claim to be Christians. And why? Now, we could say, well, they got a big institution, a lot of money, but they didn't always. What was so appealing that made people join? What, what were they offering? That's the question. What is it at its best? Not what are all the metaphors and stories about, but what were they trying to convey? That's what I hope to do today. Well, let's start with the story of Jesus. Jesus um, lived as a carpenter. When he's about 30, he goes out as a traveling preacher, and within three years, he's executed as a criminal. That's the story. He, he produced no army. He wrote no books, left nothing in writing. What seemed to have happened to him is that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist was this electrifying preacher whose message was, look how evil the world is. God is going to come and judge everybody. Like, and it's going to happen any day now. The end of this world is going to happen. Well, the powers that be didn't like that. John was arrested as a rebel and killed. What was going to happen to his flock? Who would succeed him? So the carpenter goes out to the desert. Now, going out to the desert, you know, removing all the trappings of your life, all the distractions, so that you can really experience your inner reality, your spirit, see what it says to you, see what it's about. You know, pretty much what Moses did, he goes on top of Mount Sinai to meet God. And he comes back with the Ten Commandments. You know, it's what Buddha did. He could sit under the bow tree, meditated there, until he came back with the Eightfold Path. That's what Muhammad does. He goes to a cave, and he comes back with a message from God. Jesus comes back and decides he's going to succeed John. And so he begins traveling. He's a traveling preacher and healer. Which means he just walks around, and if he's doing good works, you're going to be pleased to feed him. Or maybe even shelter him. 
Otherwise, nothing. That's what he does. Jesus picks up from John's message. And he's, he's, he, what he is preaching is, after the collapse, what kind of kingdom of God will be? What, what will the kingdom of God be like that happens after the collapse? And how do we prepare for it? That was his question. Well, Jesus' essential message is Jewish. I mean, what we know about those ancient traditions is what we read in the book. You know, That's just like words and stories. But traditions have an experience to them. People experience them. And they share that experience. And this fundamental Jewish experience was we're not alone. There's an other sharing this space with us. There's an unseen order all around us. And I know it because we didn't create this earth. Something made it happen. And things are alive, and then they die. And milk curdles. And storms come, drops come. How come, why? Sometimes ancestors seem to influence us. They curse us, they help us. Good things happen sometimes. Why, are this, why does this family have good things and this family have bad things? Why? Why? New ideas, where do they come from? They seem to come from nowhere. Well, the Greeks said they came from muses. And the Greeks had the forces of the unseen power as things like wisdom and love and war. Well, Jesus taught in the Hebrew tradition that said, there is an unseen power. It's all around us and it's in us. And that power is what animates your life. And it interacts with the physical world. And you and I can connect with that power. That was the Jewish idea of what the world was like. The question then for the Jews became, what is the nature of the unseen power? Well, first of all, it's a creator. Very powerful and good enough to create this world and pretty beautiful world that he created, so he's a creator. Moses defines him as Yahweh, which is, means literally breath of life. It's the breath of life. That's what God is. Or they describe him as a shepherd, kind of protective of us. Moses, of course, saw him as a lawgiver. Ten commandments and then more. He was like a king, somebody who you should surrender to, who you should have your allegiance to. He was a judge. But all of these are images. The images were simply not to be literal. You know, we live in a scientific age. We're the most literal ever. I mean, you know, we, we take all of these things literal. What they were doing, they, didn't, they couldn't read or write. They didn't reason. They felt. Stories moved them. And so the reason that you depicted this kingdom of God with these specifics is to convey a certain feeling inside of a person. Well, Jesus took a new turn in his preaching about what that unseen power is. He called it the kingdom of God. And he didn't see God as a law. He thought God interacted with us with an experience, and the experience was love and joy. That 
When we see something, the landscape that we like, we have an experience inside. We call it beauty. It's a strong enough experience that we can even picture it later and still get that good feeling of beauty. Well, Jesus is saying there's another good feeling. It's called love and joy. And if you tune into it, you feel it. Our spiritual challenge is to let it in. It's like air all around us. Breathe it. Breathe love and joy. If you do, then you're empowered. Every rich person, poor person, educated, illiterate, man or woman, slave, sick or healthy, sinner, everybody equally at every moment in time can simply tune in the kingdom of God. Tune in love and joy. By tuning in love and joy, you can do anything because particularly you can drive out anything bad in you. It's sort of like bad is darkness and love and joy are the light. There can't be any darkness when there's that much light. Now, Jesus was a charismatic leader, healer. He cast out uh, demons. He healed the sick. He brought the dead to life. Quote, they brought him all who were sick or possessed with demons and whole villages gathered to watch. Now, Jesus was talented, but he was in a long line of similar charismatic healers. And we have them still today. You see them on TV. That's the tradition that Jesus came from. They also say that his message wasn't new. True. Almost every one of his ideas are somewhere in the Old Testament. But he put it together. He was a popularizer. He spoke so clearly and so simply that people got it. The kingdom of God is around you. It's energy and experience. It's love and joy. Love and joy is the thing that powers life, that animates life. Tune into it. That was his message. But his message and its applications is pretty profound. Let me give you examples. You can know the truth. You know, if you're filled with love and joy, you have a lot of confidence. You can know the truth. You can handle the truth. You can know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Set you, free. you know? It's like we are all in the bondage of ignorance. Whatever we can't do. I still don't program the VCR. I mean, it's a joke that's so old, but I still can't do it. You know, you, we are all in the bondage of whatever we're ignorant from. The truth will set us free. Do unto others as you would have. Right? I mean, you know, 2,000 years later, are they going to remember what you and I said? The Good Samaritan story. Wow. That would be like Al-Qaeda helping out a Republican. <laughs> Give, give your coat to someone who needs it. Do not revenge evil. Turn your other cheek. Yeah. You have, have not sinned, may cast the first stone. Blessed those who curse you. Blessed those who curse you. 
Live like a good shepherd who risks 99 to rescue one who needs help. So do we rescue, or do we, do we risk our livelihood, our assets, to go out and risk people, who, for, to take a risk for people who are in harm's way? Jesus thought that was the way in the kingdom of God. Love everybody as your brother and sister. Love sinners, because sinners need love more than anybody. Now, these are radical ideas. Let me put them in a social context. Jesus' kingdom of God had a big social political message to it. There were the Romans. The Romans had, been, uh, had conquered the Hebrews a century before. They, were, they taxed very heavily and leaving people in severe poverty. And so there were uprisings. And the Romans were like violent in their oppression and response. Very repressive. Then a second group of people, there are five groups of people, Romans, and then the Sadducees. The Sadducees are the upper class who basically make accommodations to Roman life. The Essenes. The Essenes are people who just go far away and make a little commune and have a nice life for themselves and try to stay out of this whole thing. Crazy. Then there are the Pharisees. The Pharisees are mainline Hebrew religious Jews. They believe that God has forsaken them because they have not lived by the letter of the Jewish law. They have not been following the rituals well enough. And so what they're dedicated to is to do their religious duty right. Because they believe if they and everybody else were to do that, then God would intervene and the Romans would be gone. Then there are the zealots. These people are just sporadically rebelling. It comes up everywhere. And the Hebrews were known as the most difficult people to oppress. You know, oh my gosh, you know, Pontius Pilate, I pulled the Hebrews, my God. You know, they're uprising constantly. We're killing them constantly, you know? This is, it's so hard. The zealots rebelled. Now, Jesus differed with each and all of these groups. He differed with the Sadducees because he didn't respect wealth. And he wanted change. Sadducees were pretty comfortable. The Essenes didn't align with him because they dropped out and he believed in staying in the world. Unlike the zealots, he was peaceful. You know, the break with Judas. Judas is a zealot. And, you know, Jesus is gathering these crowds and they're all excited and he's preaching this message and Judas figures, like, there's going to be a zealot rebellion, the biggest one ever. This is really good. And then Jesus says, no, I'm peaceful. No rebellion. Judas thought, Jesus sold out the cause. What were we doing all this for, he says, if you were going to sell out the cause? Unlike the Pharisees, Jesus confronted them by saying, it's not about the letter of the law. It's about the spirit. When people go to worship, if they have a transgression, a wrongdoing against somebody else, they should leave the temple and go fix it. That's what Jesus said. So none of these groups aligned with Jesus. Jesus had a new vision. He wanted a community, a kingdom of love and joy. 
not of rituals and laws, certainly not of oppression. Jesus preached the social order will crumble of its own evil and be replaced by the kingdom of God where everybody will be equal and happy. Now, that's a pretty radical vision, um, not only then, but now, I would say. Uh, let's talk about the material common sense and the kingdom of God. I think in the material common sense world, we love our friends and we hate our enemies. And, of course, in the kingdom of God, you love your enemies. Um, in the material world, responsible people get rewarded, certainly, the kingdom of God. But he says outcasts, harlots, and sinners can enter the kingdom of God. Well, God loves those who pay tribute and pray and follow the rituals. God loves those who will do good, says Jesus. Prudence is the best policy, we know that. He says, live carefree as a bird in flowers or flowers. Wealth is generally admired. He said, it'll be more difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God than a camel to pass through eye of a needle. He's not making friends here. <laughs> respect. People respect status and success, strength. The kingdom of God is for the meek, the merciful, and the good at heart shall inherit the earth. For a hundred years, there had been continual revolts, revolts against Roman rule. In the Jewish tradition, there is a sense that at certain times in history, God will send a savior, a messiah, a person to lead the people, lead to, to, against its enemies. As Moses led the Hebrews out of the slavery of Egypt. And so every few years, one of these traveling preachers would decide, or his followers would decide, you are the Savior, you're the Messiah. And an uprising would come. And only a few years before Jesus, there'd been an uprising in which the so-called Messiah told everybody that God's on our side, they can't hurt you. And tens of thousands of people were slaughtered, went unarmed into the Roman army. There's pressure from above on Pontius Pilate to stop these rebellions. No more rebellions. We replace you. But Jesus, he had a manner about him he, like, had a loving, joyful energy. And people picked it up, you know, got a contact high. And so he was surrounded by people who were loving and joyful and singing, which attracted more people. And they were passionate. Large, passionate crowds worried the Romans. Get rid of this guy. I want to nip this in the bud before it gets to be an army and a rebellion. The Pharisees didn't want more death. Jesus was captured, killed as a rebel who threatened the social order. Now, let's look at Jesus' impact on the people around him. He had such an impact on people that they kept spreading his message. What was the impact? I want to briefly say five things. First impact, Peter, Acts 10.38. He went about doing good. 
Jesus walked around seeking people who were suffering. That's what he did. He went around to look for people. You know anybody who's suffering? And he wanted to find them so that he could help them, so he could counsel them, or he could heal them. We'll figure it out. This inspired people. I mean, he's not just trying to make a living here. He's just walking around looking for suffering people. The rest of us like avoid suffering people. Man, I don't want to be one of them. He's looking for it. He went about doing good. That was very impressive. Second thing is that he preached that the kingdom of God is within you. Not up there. That came later. Worldliness. I love this. If you're concerned with your outer life, he says, if that's what you're concerned, it's like your outer life becomes a stately mausoleum. Think about that. He's saying that as we accumulate our wealth in our houses, we're building a monument to ourselves. That's our stately mausoleum. Because that's not what makes you successful. The rest of the quote's even better. If you put all your attention to the creating a stately mausoleum, your inner life stinks of your decaying corpse. Like a mausoleum, if you pay all attention to your monument and not attention to your inner spiritual self, you die inside and you become a stinking corpse and you decay. That's his message. Pay attention, he says, not to the material things in your life, not the stories, not the metaphors, not the rituals, not the prayers, not the laws. Pay attention to your experience of love and joy. Because when you're feeling love and joy, you are connected to the kingdom of God. Praise Jesus. Doing good. The kingdom of God is within you. The third impact was how he responded to evil. Goodness comes... Not following laws, he says. Not restraining the bad parts of you, your urges to do harm or get ahead. Goodness is the fruit of the vine of love. When you fill yourself up with love and joy, your urge to do any kind of using or abusing of anybody just can't exist in the same being. I mean, think about it. You know, it's like... Darkness can't exist if there's a bright light. Can you actually say to yourself that if you experience right now love and joy and you're filled up with it, you're going to be thinking bad things about people? Capable of cruelty? If you're filled up with love and joy? That was his point. Also, in, his, in, in, in dealing with evil, he had the idea of turning the other cheek. Now, what was that about? It wasn't about surrendering evil people. He says, your suffering at the hands of another does not justify your retaliation. It doesn't justify the evil that you do back, even if someone's evil to you. Evil happens to you, but it does not determine who you are. What determines who you are is what you do back. What determines what you're doing with goodness? It's love that conquers hate. Doing good, kingdom of God, respond to evil by finding a way to be loving. The fourth one was that 
Jesus put his own philosophy to the test. He was humiliated, he was tortured, he was crucified. Now that wasn't exceptional. Tens of thousands of people were crucified in those days. But what was unusual is he blessed them that it cursed him. His final words, forgive them for they know not what they do. His love stayed constant right through his facing his own personal suffering. So it wasn't just a message he was giving. It was a way he was living. That impressed people. The fifth one is that he grounded the kingdom of God in the experience of individual people. Quote, my teachings are true not because they come from me or even from God, but because your heart attests to their truth. And you can take that test right now. I mean, do you think his thesis is correct? That if you tapped into love and joy and filled you up all the time, that you would be a good person, better person, happier? Decide for yourself. Well, that's the greatest story ever told. Love and joy is what empowers you. And that's some of the main things that impressed people. They wanted to keep going. But now we have to talk about the Christ story, which is a different story. The Christ story is written after his death, long after his death. Um, but it's begun by Paul, shortly after his death. And, and then it's built on by the Roman church leaders. Paul never met Jesus, and he never quotes Jesus. Yet he's the most successful of those who are out spreading Christianity. He, he puts communities all through Greece and Africa, and then he gets himself up to Rome. And he does write. He um, sends back these um, sermons and writing that go back from community, community, community. And the collection of all of those letters is what the founders of the Roman church use as the foundation of Christianity that they then further develop. Paul understood something. And why did he create the story, uh, the Christ story, which I'll tell you in a minute what it is. But um, he understood that um, the human brain uh, has a vision of reality. And if you want to change behavior or spirit, you have to change people's vision of reality. Like, if people think that might is makes right, they're going to be like, angry and dominating whatever they can. If, if, if they believe that following rituals is going to make the world a better place, make you a better person, they're going to be very religious. If you think that God placed the rich people in there and the poor people down here and that was his will, you're going to revere your betters and you're not going to work for social progress. So to change character behavior and culture requires that you train, change the vision of reality. You have to change the story of life that people have in their heads and they share with each other. Objective truth of the spiritual beliefs is always uncertain and unprovable. But a faith should be judged by the experiences that it creates, by the character and the culture that arise out of it. That's the theory. Okay. So, What's the Christ star that Paul creates, and how does he create it? 
Well, Paul is a traveling preacher. Uh, he's ridiculed, driven out of town. He's shipwrecked. He's imprisoned. He's flogged. Um, but he writes back these letters. And what Paul is preaching is what he calls the good news. Jesus was God who became man to tell us the secret of life. Jesus was a God come to earth to tell us the secret of life. Well, what's the secret of life? Well, he says, try it yourself. I'll tell you what it is, and then you see if it isn't true for yourself. Here's the secret. No matter what you suffer, you can always sing, laugh, be joyful, and loving. Nobody can take love and joy away from you. Only you can deny yourself love and joy. Joy is the light in your heart that shines into the darkness. Love and joy are free. They're abundant. It's available. It's here as we breathe. Everyone can equally experience it. That was a radical idea. Everyone can enter the kingdom of heaven, not just kings. There are no social barriers. No race or gender or status or religion or slave or lord or sinner. We can all do it. Just do it. You can enter the spirit of Jesus. John 15, 11. Let my joy be in you. Now, sinners, God will forgive you. You know, put down your guilt. You can't go around saying, like, I can't be love and joy because I have all this guilt. Put it down. God will forgive you. Go to love and joy. So I can't because I got all these things I got to worry about. I got to worry about my life and my job and my kids. I got all these worries. I feel too fearful to fill myself up with love and joy. Feel love and joy anyway. The fear will disappear. You have lots of energy and you can solve all those problems. No excuses. I don't have an excuse, but I just find I can't do it. You know, I just, I just can't get there. Got an answer for that too. You can't do it? Here's the reason. You are now imprisoned by your own self-absorption. You've confined yourself so much to you and your welfare that you have robbed yourself of the experience of reaching out and touching other people in a meaningful way from which you'll be open enough to experience the love and joy. Try it. If you don't believe it, just try reaching out and see if it doesn't work. It feels great. Success, after all, is so that we can have a life that's loving and joyful. But let's remember that loving and joyful can be had even before you're successful. And it will make you more successful. Love does not depend on your wealth. It doesn't depend on anything. Just be loving and joyful. That is the secret of life. It's also a threat to consumerism. <laughs> so in the first century Rome, Christians were persecuted. And yet, they kept expanding and growing. And there was something about Christians, the way they were, the way they treated you, that was special. It's special. And people were curious because of the way they were together and toward people. Very, very friendly, very nice. And in any city, because they were persecuted, there was this symbol of a fish, you know, it's like just these two lines that go like that. And the fish would point to where the community met. 
to the sanctuary where they won't be cursed, where they, where, where they could be together. And, and the fish was because the Greek word for fish, the letters of it, were the initials of J.C., Son of God, Savior. And so people would want to know the secret of the fish, and they'd say, well, it's about salvation. And what's salvation? And here's the message. Give love and joy to each other and to everyone. That's the whole message. Give love and joy to each other and everyone. Now, the church com communities had a mission, but it wasn't mutual aid to help each other, protect each other. It wasn't good works. Their mission was to reinforce each other's faith by generating among them experiences of love and joy. They call it the Holy Spirit. This is before the Father, Son, all that. They call it the Holy Spirit. To cultivate that Holy Spirit by loving each other. That's what we do here. So that we can go back into the world filled up with this love and joy and better deal with our world. That's why we come here. Jesus embodied love and joy. You know? He conveyed it in his services. He, he, he showed you how to be loving and joy. Now, the community has to be the new vine, the new source. People stimulating each other to experience love and joy by being loving and joyful to each other. That's the purpose of their spiritual community. Here's the story of Christ as the Savior made doctrine. It's made doctrine by the Council of Nicaea in 325. I and mean, here's the story, basically. God created humanity and placed them in the Garden of Eden where there was no suffering. Love and joy was as air, no suffering. When Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden tree, the tree was, stood for the tree of uh, the knowledge of good and evil. So from that point on, humanity suffered. They suffered in birth, they suffered in to live, to work, suffering. And by trial and error, we're basically saying, we're going to figure out ourselves how to deal with suffering by trial and error. So that's what happens. But by the time of Noah, God is saying like, whoa, they are not getting it. You know, it's, everything is evil and bad and they're on the wrong track. I'm going to drown everybody and start over again. And he does. And of course, when he comes back to earth, he realizes that it's, everything's rotten flesh and stuff all around. And he's saying, well, no, I, I guess I overreacted, right? And uh, Noah said, yeah, yeah, I think you overreacted. And he said, okay, I'm going to make a deal with you. I'm going to make a covenant. It's called the rainbow covenant. That's why we have rainbows. And the rainbow is to uh, remind God that never again he's going to annihilate everybody. Start over. But he gets some frustrations. I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah, they got vaporized, you know. He was a frustrated God. So 2,000 years ago, and this is the Christ story, 2,000 years ago, God said, they're just not getting it. I'm going to become a man, and I'm going to tell them the secret, and I'm going to live it out as a role model so they can get a sense of what it means to be a good person. And so, that's what he did. And the worst suffering that they could conceive of, the whole torture, crucifixion thing, humiliation thing, is what he went through to say, like, hey, I can go through all this. And when he went through it, he role modeled facing cruelty, compassion to cruelty. And that was the idea. Arrhenius, quote, God became man that man might enter the kingdom of God. The Christ story is then applied by saying that you can be reborn, that the potential for being Jesus-like, loving and joyful, is in you.
But to get to it, I may have to put away a lot of donism. But I can tune in to that part of me that's loving and joyful. And if I do, I'm animated and I do good things and all of that. So do it. Whenever you feel the pains in life, you should find the love and joy because that's what animate you and empower you. Well, what are the applications of this story to us? When I go to a Christian church, I don't get this message because I get confused by all these metaphors and rituals. How do you use the underlying message? Is it useful to you? That's a choice that you have to make because ultimately you attest the truth of this in your own heart. And the question I ask you right now, do you believe this? One, that love and joy are always accessible. That you are like an instrument that can learn to tune in to love and joy. Positive psychology movement seems to be documenting that pretty much. But how many dare say that they would agree with that? That you can always turn into love, tune into love and joy. Yeah. Yeah. I have to preach more to the rest of you. <laughs> the second question. Do you think that the purpose of spiritual community, like our community, is to create love and joy among us? And when we're filled with love and joy, we can go out into the world and be far more empowered and make a bigger difference because we have that power. And that purpose is to generate it among us. I mean, can you agree with that? Right. Right. Almost all, many in there. Well, let me just say something about my personal application. Just a couple simple things. First of all, uh, leadership means uh, stepping out and taking a stand, which means that whatever stand you take, there are people who will disagree with it, and they give you something which is called feedback. <laughs> but sometimes feedback is emotionally labeled with nastiness. What I take from this is love them anyway. The second thing is, um, I have lots of opportunities to greet people. And I notice when I greet people, I tend to, like people who are warmly greet me and reach out to me, I reach out to them and I'm really warm. But I have this worry, it's like, I don't want to invade people's space. And I don't want to be rejected. But the message from today is that the source of love and joy is not what people are giving me. The source of love and joy is here. And if I get rejected or if I invade, I can deal with that. But not hold back, give it. Be more outgoing. Be more loving and joyful. Invade people's boundaries a little bit. You know, if you're going to have your boundaries invaded with love and joy, hey, as good as it gets. And finally, the hardest one, smile more. Um, that's my application. Um, in the response period, I'd love to hear how you might apply Jesus' secret of life.